Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. The new year with a message about fresh starts. And I talked about the Apostle Paul and how he is such a great example of someone whose life was rocked by Jesus. Anybody's life been rocked by Jesus here today? And how Paul made such an abrupt and complete change, he started fresh. And as you all know, living for Jesus isn't about being perfect. It's about continuing or continually starting fresh as his mercies are new every morning. So last week, the message was entitled, New Year, Fresh Start. This morning, I'm sorry, yeah, Fresh Start. This morning, I want us to keep with the New Year theme just a bit, but I want to talk about having a fresh vision for 2023 New year, fresh vision. In in our church, and many of you know this from taking the Connections class and just being around a while and understanding, and I, I don't say this with pride or arrogance in any way, but this is just the way we're set up. It is up to the lead pastor to hear from God for the direction and vision of the church. That doesn't mean I'm here to tell you everything you're supposed to do individually and and make all your personal decisions for you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the direction of us as a body, as as a whole. And that does include listening to those in the congregation. That does include hearing other members of the pastoral staff, taking in consideration the history of where we've been as a church, weighing the different spiritual gifts that are represented here along with all the resources we have as a local congregation. And then we have the board of elders who approves of that vision, and they hold the pastor, the pastor accountable to implementing that vision while helping him implement it. And so there's checks and balances, and there's all that, but, but the weight of the vision in this church and, and the way we do things around here falls to the pastor, whoever sits in that chair at the time. And as you know, we came to the decision a long time ago that the vision for Indianola First, as we considered all those things that I just mentioned, stated as simply as we possibly can is rescue, develop, deploy. That's the vision that God, I believe, has given First Assembly, Indianola First Assembly of God. To rescue, to develop, and to deploy. And we still believe it's God's vision for this church today. To rescue those that need rescuing, to provide an atmosphere of encouragement and resources for us all to grow in our faith. How many are done growing? Okay. And to help deploy every person who calls this their church home, which means providing outlets for ministry. And simplistically stated, it's simplistically stated, rescue, develop, deploy, but it's a monumental task. If we succeed in this, we will essentially win people to Jesus, build them up in their faith, and equip them to do the same. In some ways, succeeding in this vision makes it harder to go to hell from Indianola, Iowa for the people that live in this area, right? And I I, I like thinking about it that way because there's a little strategic thinking that goes along with that. I do want to make it hard for people to go to hell from Indianola and the surrounding area. You know, years and years ago, this place was joked about. People made fun of Indianola. You know what they call it? The holy city. This is years, years, decades ago. 
They were the holy city because Indianola stood firm for so long, not serving, not selling, not having any alcohol. We were a dry town a long time ago. And I'm not ripping on all the alcohol this morning. I'm not talking about all that. I'm just saying we were made fun of for taking a stand. Wouldn't it be something if Indianola became the holy city again because God's people rose up in prayer and lived for him like never before and made it hard or at least more difficult to go to hell from this place because God's spirit was just reigning here and it's just hard to resist the Lord when he, when he, when he shows up, right? And I think it's a wonderful thing to have a vision that is so big. I mentioned a second ago, it's a monumental task to rescue, develop, deploy. But if we succeed in this, it's going to be not because we're so great, but because God is so big and awesome. And I love having this, this big vision that's so impossible to achieve that it's absolutely 100% has to be the Lord who accomplishes it. When you look back through the 70 plus years that this church has been in existence, it's taken sacrifice, time and finances, and a laying down of personal dreams. It's taken many who have laid before the Lord in prayer. It's taken many who have put forth unbelievable effort and commitment. And it's not like it's always been easy for the leaders that God has placed here, elders, pastors, as well as every leader of every ministry that's ever flowed from this body of believers. There have been some really difficult things that this church has gone through, there's no doubt. And that's my point. A vision worth having is a vision worth fighting for. It's a vision worth going through the trenches to accomplish. And I want to take you back to Genesis this morning, to chapter 11. And this is after God created everything in the earth, you know, the, the light, the skies, the, the, the trees, the vegetation, the animals, all of the stuff that he created. And it's after he created man. And this is after Adam and Eve fell to sin and got kicked out of the paradise of the Garden of Eden. And this is after Cain killed Abel and man grew continually more evil until God was sorry that he ever made them and, of course, ended up destroying them with a worldwide flood. Everyone died. No one was spared except Noah and his family. And as you read on in Genesis, we see that from Noah's three sons, the generations began to once again populate the earth. His three sons, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. Chapter 11 then begins with the people coming together and gathering in one place and building a tower, the Tower of Babel. And as you know, God confused their languages and, and, and they dispersed. As we, as we watch and listen to the story unfold, we, we can sometimes see this as, wow, they were really unified. They were in unity. But, but don't be mistaken, this was nothing more than a cheap substitute of unity. This was uniformity, which I believe is the very reason God dispersed them all over the world. God loves unity. He doesn't love uniformity. He created you all different. There's the proof. Uniformity is sameness. Unity is agreement, different but agree. And that doesn't mean we believe differently about what sin is and what it isn't. Obviously, we know what sin is, right? God's written the law on our hearts. We know what sin is. We know what right and wrong is. He's built that into us, right? And if we have a relationship with him, we know him. I'm not talking about that, but I'm saying we're very different. Look around the room. We're very different. We have twins in the congregation, and as you get to, they might look alike, but when you get to know them, they're nothing alike. 
My mom was a twin. And sometimes when I was a little kid, I'd go up and I'd, I'd, I'd uh, at family reunion, and I'd, I'd, I'd pull on, on her, 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 her shirt or whatever and say, Mom, and she'd turn to me and say, I'm not your mom. <laughs> this is my Aunt Marcia. My mom is Mary. She's Marcia. Marcia, 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 right? They might look the same, but nobody's the same. Nobody is exactly alike. God created us that way. He's the God of infinite variety. He put different things in you than he did in me, and that's wonderful. I mean, the most obvious one that's been blurred a little bit lately is he created them male and female. Right? That's obvious. But even in those two groups, he created them different. He made us all different colors. I love that. I love colors. He made it, I mean, I'm really white. I could use some color. <laughs> but he put different talents and gifts and all sorts of different things inside of us. He made us completely different. And he says, now come together and agree. That's unity. Uniformity is when someone, um, like the former Speaker of the House, says, you will all do this, and everybody does it. I didn't say any names. That's uniformity. That leads to communism, by the way. I'm getting way off track here, but I don't care. I'm just in a mood today. God loves unity, but he hates uniformity. Tower of Babel was uniformity. That was just, that was just, that's just for free today. That's not even anything to do with today. But God dispersed them. And as you continue to read through chapter 11, it starts with the Tower of Babel and all that, you go through the descendants of Shem and will come to a man named Terah. Turn to your neighbor and say Terah. And verse 26 lists his three sons. Let's read it, Genesis 11, 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Guys, not much is said about Terah, but he is a very important figure because he's the father of Abram, who would later become Abraham. And we all know that name, right? Actually, Terah, or Abraham, was one of the most influential figures of all time, and Terah was his dad. Abraham uh, is influential in this. It, he's considered to be the father of at least three of the world's top seven religions. Did you know that? Or at least a father figure in. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. We as Christians consider Abraham as the father of faith, right? Jews consider him to be the father in which their entire people descended. He fathered Isaac, who fathered Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, which became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And Abram is one of the most referred to names in the Quran, the holy book of Muslims. Muslims are those, that, are those people that practice Islam. Abraham is called Ibrahim in the Quran. And you can track Islamic beliefs back to Abram's, Abraham's son Ishmael and the prophecies spoken in reference to him. And you can track Judaism, the religion of the Jews, back to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, or I'm sorry, great-grandson, Jacob, and as Christians, we are all grafted into the vine, adopted into Christ. We are people of faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had. We are children of the faith as Christians. 
And if you think about all the wars and the fighting and throughout the centuries that have occurred between these religious groups of people, it really all started with an ancient sibling rivalry, didn't it? Isaac, Ishmael. Let's get back into Genesis. Because in chapter 11, verse 27 through 32, it says this. Now these are the generations of Terah. We're going to talk about Terah for just a few verses here. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's, was, that, that would be southern Iraq today. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. So we see that Nahor took for himself the daughter of the son of Terah that had passed away in Ur of the Chaldeans. Verse 30, now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, or Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, now this isn't a person now, this is a place. It gets a little confusing here, but it's a place. And Haran, the place, is southeastern Turkey today, just so you kind of know where they were at. They, when they got there, they settled there. Verse 32, the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. These are scriptures we normally just read right over. We're trying to read through the Bible in a year, and we kind of just, you know, go for it, right? We don't know how to say the name sometimes, so we just kind of say it and keep going. And that's great, and that's fine, but, but all these names and all these things that happen are extremely important events. They're important people. They wouldn't be mentioned in the Word of God. What I want you to see there is that Terah, for some unknown reason, we're not told in the Word of God, he got it in his mind that he would pick up and leave, pick up everything he owned, all of his wealth, all of his possessions, his family. He would pick it all up and leave his home, Ur of the Chaldeans, and head to the land of Canaan. That's what the word says. He got this idea somehow, and he decided, I'm going to do this. And as everyone that spends time reading through the Bible on a regular basis knows, that was the very place that God told Abram to go in the very next chapter, right? We know about Abram going to Canaan. Let's read it real quick for those of you that might not. Genesis 12, 1 through 5. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is the next chapter, go from your country, which at this time was Haran, because that's where he was. That's where... His dad settled, and he was with them, with his family. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, you are, uh, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that, 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 uh, had acquired, that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. It's a lot to read, but it's important stuff. 
As I said before, we are never told why Terah, Abraham's father, took off from Ur of the Chaldeans and and why he set out for Canaan. We can assume that it was a, a really big undertaking for him, though. It wasn't an easy journey. Terah was a wealthy man. We know that. And we know this because after he died, Abram seems to have inherited a lot of wealth. It says in Genesis 13, even the next chapter over, it says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. In fact, he was so wealthy that the scriptures tell us that he and his his nephew Lot were not able to live in the same area anymore because the land couldn't sustain their wealth. Wouldn't it be nice to live in that kind of blessing? So much wealth that, uh, hey, family, you got to move ways further away because there ain't enough land to, uh, to really contain our wealth. It's an awesome thing. They were wealthy. It doesn't really say verbatim how they got wealthy. Genesis 13, 6 says this, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. It, it, it seems practical and probable that they both received an inheritance from Terah when he died in Haran. Abraham got his portion, and Lot got his father's portion, which his father was Haran, who died back in Ur of the Chaldeans. And I bring this all up to make the point that Terah must have been pretty wealthy which would have made it extremely difficult to move across the land with all those herds and all those people and all of that wealth. Why did he decide to move from his homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans, why did he decide to do that? It doesn't really make any sense. Everything was good there. He was wealthy there. He had it going on. He had his family around him. Why would he do it if he didn't have some kind? What gave him this thought? Was it a calling? Did God give him the vision first for Canaan? But because they came to Haran and settled there, did Terah somehow miss that calling? I I really don't know. Again, the scriptures don't tell us, but something motivated him to make such a huge decision and move his whole life to Canaan. Remember, this is before God called Abraham to go to Canaan. And when I read these scriptures, it's so hard for me to ignore the connection between vision and calling. And what we do with our lives. Vision given by God and a chance to fulfill his calling in our lives. And can I just make this statement? You have a calling on your life. You have a calling on your life. God has called you to do something. And I don't know why it is in Western civilization, and especially America, why we've reduced calling to be only for the pastor or only for those in full-time ministry. Well, I'm called when I start getting paid for ministry. That is so far from the truth. Well, how did you end up being in full-time ministry? I have no idea because I'm the least likely candidate. I just remember when I was working on job sites, and, and people were asking me 
things about Scripture, and I found myself answering them, and everything I did seemed like it was ministry. I was cooking in restaurants, and I found myself having prayer meetings in the back of the room, and it just was like ministry just was coming out of me all the time. And I remember one day, Alyssa's brother looked at me, and he said this. He said, if, if you can't help but minister, it's probably because you have a calling to minister, maybe, maybe even full-time. He said, maybe even full-time. I didn't think it was full-time, but I decided to start ministering then a little more. I started pursuing it a little more. I started getting some education in the area. And all of a sudden, you know, it, it just happens. But I'm not saying that you have to be full-time, that you have to be paid for ministry in order to uh, assume that you have a calling. You have a calling right where you're at and whatever you're doing. You're called. I wish we had a huge sign above the doors in the back of the church. Every partner or member in this place, every attendee is a missionary. And you are now entering the mission field as you go out the doors. Church isn't about necessarily coming here and getting filled up, even though when you come here you should get filled up. Church should be about getting filled up so that then you can go and fill others up. You have a calling. I don't know what your calling is. It's not my job to tell you what it is. It's your job to seek the Lord, hear from him, find out what it is, make it known to some spiritual leaders in your life. It could be the pastoral leadership of this church, the elders of this church, teachers or whatever, and they can help equip you to function fully in that calling. Ah, it's just easier if I can just do my own thing and just pay somebody to fulfill the calling. That's kind of what people do in America. You know, I, I don't think I'm any better than anybody else in this church. I, if I can't fix a toilet or clean a toilet or do something like that in this church because I'm the pastor and I have a position then we're in for a lot of trouble. And I've had my hands in the toilets and the... <laughs> sewer pumps and the places in this church. I don't even want to say that, but... My hand has been in some of your stuff. <laughs> and I think that's okay, because this is our church together, right? This isn't my church. We all got to do our part to make things happen, right? That was a visual I didn't intend to give. <laughs> now I don't even want to. Like... <laughs> Nobody's more important than anybody else around here. Everybody doing their part, everybody having a part in doing their part, everybody fulfilling their calling as a body of believers. And I know there's callings outside of this place. I'm not, I'm not saying all your callings have to be inside this building. I'm not saying that. A church is a people, right? I get that. But as a family, we have callings to one another. And to the organization that we have, we have a calling to it to do our part. The word of Jesus comes to mind as we're talking about this. Matthew twenty-two, fourteen 14 says, For many are called, 
These are the words of Jesus after he shared a parable, but he, he said, many are called, but few are chosen. Was Tara called, but not chosen? And why wasn't he chosen? Was it because he settled in Haran? He got all of his wealth, and he started moving out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He started moving across the land. And I can imagine that convoy had to be pretty big. And it's hard to move that many people. Have you ever tried to herd sheep? I mean, it was hard. It was difficult. And maybe they came to a place that was, well, this is a pretty nice place. Let's just, this is great. Let's, let's, let's stay here. Let's settle. I don't know why he went only so far and then settled in Haran. Maybe he settled for Haran. Maybe good became the enemy of best in his life. Maybe he traveled so far and upon finding a place that could, that could support his family and livestock, he decided he had come far enough, he had put forth a valiant effort, this was good enough for him. Ah, oh, let's kick back and relax and enjoy life. I don't know, but the fact of the matter is, is, is that there are just a few verses dedicated to Terah and his life, but the next 14 chapters are all about Abraham. Who got a vision? Abraham got a vision. It wasn't a new vision, but it was definitely a fresh one. And he acted on it, and he eventually fulfilled it. Church, there are enough Terahs in this world. People who are buried with unfulfilled callings still in them. God-given visions that never take root within their hearts because of whatever reasons have gotten in the way. Proverbs is, is, is very clear. Where there is no vision, the people... And that's no way to live. In a state of perishing. And I'm not going to apologize for saying this. Life is tough. Bad things happen. We get hurt physically, emotionally, even spiritually by other people sometimes. But hear me, there is nothing that can happen to us in this life that constitutes having an excuse for being visionless people who are callous to the callings of God. I don't care how bad it gets for you. Well, you don't know what I've been through. I know. I don't know what you've been through. But I do know this. There's no reason to say, well, I don't have to have any vision then. I can be callous to what God's called me to. There are no excuses. And that's hard. That's a hard thing to say because we want to have empathy for you. I want to have empathy for you. people who just limp through life, people who just exist and die. It's not how God created us to be. You were created for more than that. The gifts that you have been given, the empathy, the mercy, the boldness, the directness, the kindness of heart, the intellect, the abilities to build, and the list goes on and on, the talents and, 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 and to sing and to play instruments, the patience to counsel, the heart to serve, and, and again, it goes on and on and on and on and on. All the gifts and talents and things that are put in, in his people. And there are as many gifts and combinations of multiple gifts represented in this church as there are people in this church. This is a gifted place. And they're not meant to be buried in the ground for safekeeping. They are meant to be used for his glory. They are meant to be used to make the name of Jesus famous. Church, are you hearing me this morning? 
those gifts, those callings, the vision that he will give you if you admit that there is a calling in your life. If you give those gifts back to him, there will be a vision that comes to you and you're responsible to carry that out. The Western church in general has become so spiritually constipated. And I, I say that with... They become constipated with comparing and complaining and coming up with every reason imaginable as to why they are exempt from fulfilling their callings. So constipated that they become virtually powerless, a powerless church. But I got news for the devil if he thinks he can stop the flow of God's power through the people in this church. We know who we are. We know whose we are. And I believe we know what must be done. We all know what holds us back individually, don't we? We're not, I, I don't have to sit here and convince you that there's things in your life that hold you back from fulfilling God's calling in your life. You know what those things are. Addictions. Well, it's so hard to get rid of the addiction. Well, it's hard to hang on the cross for six hours for you too, but Jesus did it. That's a low blow, isn't it? I shouldn't do that. Get rid of the addiction. I mean, drop it. But I, 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 I need that. No, you don't. You need more Jesus. You don't need to be addicted to nothing. I'm talking drugs. I'm talking alcohol. I'm talking cigarettes. I'm talking food. I'm talking gossip. I'm talking whatever you might be addicted to. TV. I have to unwind and just watch TV. I get that. I've been there. Escape into a different reality for a while because you don't want to deal with your own. What do you think TV is all about anyway? That's what it's about. Where everything is nice and everything's happy and good things happen and the endings are always good. Addictions, they get in the way. Unforgiveness in our hearts gets in the way. I, I'm just never going to forgive that guy. You know what that person did to me? I'm not going to forgive them. Gets in the way of fulfilling all that. You just, you're just stuck then. You're just done. Oh, I, I can't stand that person. You're asking me to forgive him? Yep. Jesus forgave you. Unbelief that God could ever count me worthy. Oh, that's a big one, isn't it? Hurdles that get in the way from us fulfilling God's callings in our life. Oh, you'd never use me. You know what I've done? You know what I've, you know, you know what thoughts go through my head? Blah, 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 blah. Are you saying that one drop of Jesus' blood can't completely forgive you and set you free? That you, all of a sudden you're, 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 you can't be worthy because then you're, you're speaking against the blood of Jesus when you say that. You know that, right? And I get all the shame that comes on us and we put it on us and we're like, oh, I can't do anything for Jesus because I'm so bad. Well, give it to him. Know you're forgiven and quit being bad. Stop it, right? It sometimes is that simple. There's overwhelming grief that has such a grip on us sometimes that we're just paralyzed. We lose a loved one, a spouse, a child, or something like that, and the grief just sets in so heavy, and it's so much that it paralyzes us, and we, can't, we, just, we just can't fulfill what God's called us to do. I can understand that. 
But he didn't design you to live in a paralyzed state. Moving on in him will be part of your recovery from that grief. Maybe there's character flaws that are caused by unresolved issues in your life that you've just never resolved, and they're just down there so deep, and you need to kind of loosen them out, pry them out. Let the Holy Spirit do that. Resolve those issues. Don't let them become things that keep you from fulfilling God's callings in your life. Prayerlessness. That can just be the hurdle of hurdles. Really, prayer, prayerlessness is pride. Because if you think you can get anything done in Jesus without prayer, or for Jesus without prayer, if you think you can do it in yourself, that's just, that's just pride. What about laziness? Overtired and spread too thin, doing things that have no eternal value. Well, then change your priorities. We got work to do. God's given us a vision to do something. There's people outside of these walls that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm too tired to get out of bed. Maybe it's shame that you just keep living under and living under and you let the, the accuser of their brother keep telling you how horrible you are and blah, 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 blah. Tell them to shut up. Have you ever told the devil to shut it? Shut it. That's how you got to say it. Just shut it. Everybody say that. Shut it. Okay, I'll, I'll end soon here. I'm not, oh, you're not telling me to shut it. You're saying, all right. Tell the devil to shut it. Maybe it's insecurities it could, of every kind. Hatred, jealousy, worldly, sexual addictions, all these kinds of things just stop us from fulfilling the callings that God has placed in our life. The vision. Plain old rotten fear that keeps your faith muzzled. I can go on and on. There are so many hurdles, so many things that hold us back from fulfilling all that God has for us. But in this new year, with some fresh vision, and certainly by the grace of God, we can all overcome no matter what hurdle we are struggling with, and we can live the victorious life that deep in our hearts we long to live for. I'm no longer slave to fear. We just sang it. Except when I'm fearful. I am a child of God, except when I don't feel like I'm a child of God. You know, we, we, that's what we do to ourselves. And yeah, we all have failed. And we, will already, we all will probably fail again at some point. But to quit and settle for mediocrity, it's not an option. Not for me. Is it an option for you to settle? Because you messed up? 2023 is here. I, I, I'm fired up, church. I'm fired up about Jesus Christ moving across, across this land and sweeping revival with, with powerful signs and wonders following. I, I'm excited because I, I know he wants to do that. And if he wants to do it, why doesn't he do it then? Because we're in his way. Let's get out of his way. Let's put down those hurdles Let's lay hold of the callings that God has called us to. You know what will happen when you do that? Your problems don't completely go away, but all of a sudden you rise above them and they don't seem to matter as much anymore. I, I know that's true. 
We know that Abraham lived in the land of Canaan. He made it. We know that his descendants grew into a massive nation and through Joseph, who was Abraham's great-grandson, all of Egypt was saved from a seven-year famine. But following the history over time, Abraham's descendants lost their status with Egypt and became enslaved to them. 400 years of slavery. And then God sends them a deliverer, Moses. And Canaan, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, is eventually regained by the nation of Israel. Abraham's descendants. Then because of their own wicked desires, it is lost again as their nation is split in two and they are dragged off into Babylonian exile. Man, I'm getting through the whole Old Testament really quickly here, aren't I? But God sent another deliverer. His name is Jesus. And he's not just a man, he's also the word of God himself. And through Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross, the problem of sin has been dealt with. We are no longer slaves to it. It doesn't rule over us. We've been delivered from its death grip. But if we ever slip and fall into it again, Jesus says to us, confess it and he'll forgive us. Then we can move beyond it and we don't have to ever look back. You see, the fresh vision given to Abraham, we can be the recipients of it. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the, that's what God said to Abraham would happen if he went to a land that he would show him, which was the land of Canaan. And just as it was fresh vision for Abraham, because Terah originally had it, now he has it, it can be fresh vision for us today. We are not under the old Abrahamic or, uh, or Mosaic even covenant any longer. We are under the new covenant, the covenant offered by a perfect Savior. You understand that Jesus can't do anything more for you than he's already done? Because he did it all on the cross. Everything was provided on the cross. And remember, Jesus didn't abolish the old covenant. He fulfilled it in its entirety. And so what does our fresh vision look like under the new covenant under this new covenant heaven is our guaranteed home how many can get a little excited about that i mean we don't have to live like this forever there's a time coming where we're going to be in heaven in his presence in the presence of our loved ones there's going to be a forever together there's no more sickness there's no more pain there's no more suffering there's none of that crap there's none of that garbage it's all just in the presence of god it's joy unspeakable joy and full of glory there's no politicians in heaven there's no lawyers in heaven. And you don't need a pastor because we have the high priest, Jesus Christ himself. That means I don't have to work. <laughs> heaven is our guaranteed home, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. Amen. I mean, our sins will be, our, under the new covenant, our sins are completely forgiven, folks. Our guilt is completely removed. As far as the east is from the west, well, you don't know what I've done. Knock it off. Jesus' blood can cover it all. Every last bit of vile sin he died for. Man, get it in your head. 
our guilt is completely and infinitely removed. We, we can know God personally under the new covenant. We have access to his presence daily, every moment of every day. We just need to talk to him. He's right there. We have access to his healing and his wholeness and his provision and his power. It's all right there. New covenant stuff. His laws are written on our hearts. We are free from sin's control. It's not about following a list of rules anymore. It's about doing what's right because we know what's right and wrong in our heart. I mentioned that earlier. We never have to grieve like those without hope because we might grieve, but we have hope because we're going to see our loved ones again. When something bad happens, we know God's got something for us right around the corner, something that's wonderful, something that's awesome. This is what we get under the new covenant. God's calling to tell, us that, tell you all that I'm right. We have divine purpose under the new covenant. Divine purpose in this life. We get to be his hands and his feet to others. Do you understand that, church, what that means? We get to be Jesus here now. We get to represent him. We're his ambassadors. We get to go out of these walls, outside these doors, and minister to people like Jesus ministered to people. Because he lives on the inside of us. What a privilege. What an honor. Do you know what Old Testament believers would have done to have that kind of thing going on in their life? And we get it. You know what we do? Yeah, do it after this television program I'm watching. Actually, we never do it at all, some of us. We just put it on the shelf and we leave it there as an unfulfilled potential in our lives. Under this new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit. God himself living on the inside of us. What? What? I mean, he's teaching us, he's counseling us, he's telling us what to do. He's leading us. He's creating divine appointments wherever we go. Man, sounds like a boring life. Living under the new covenant is absolutely phenomenal. And all those things that God promised Abraham, those are ours, but we get to have them under the new covenant, which is even better. The vision for who you are and why you should, and why you are, okay, who you are and why you are, right? That should just rise up within your, your heart as you begin to think about it contemplating this new covenant we are under because of what Jesus has done. Vision to be used by God that created us to be used. He created us. He'll give you the vision that you need, that fresh vision for it. I mean, why be a settling Terah when you can be a fresh vision Abraham? Why not dive headfirst into the deep river of all that God has for you instead of just standing in ankle-deep water I better not say that. Just standing in ankle-deep water. Hmm, this is nice. It's wet. I like this. It's cool in my feet. It's nice. 
Some of you are saying, get on with it. That's what God's saying to you. Get on with it. What good is ankle-deep water when there's a whole river to swim in right there? Who would take a step of faith today, this morning, and say, yes, Lord, I'm ready to move out of the shallow end and start swimming? Who would be brave enough to say I'm more than what I've become? I'm moving past the hurdles and fulfilling my calling. Who's got enough courage to be honest with the fact that you have greatness inside of you just waiting to be unleashed? And by the way, the greatness is Jesus. And if that's you this morning, would you step out of your seat and come down front to this altar area? Would you stand up and say, you know what, that's me. I'm sick of shallow waters. I'm ready to jump in all the way to fulfill all that God has for me. I'm not making this very easy. I just say, get up out of your seat and come down front. Would you lift both hands and surrender to God and begin just to pray out loud for him to finish the good work that he started in you? Come on, just, just begin to pray. Just begin to pray. You don't have to be ashamed of praying with your brothers and sisters around you. You're just talking to God. They're just talking to God. God, we need fresh vision from you. Fresh vision for who we are and why we are. God, so we can accomplish and lay hold of all the callings that you've placed in our lives as individuals and as a church. God, we want all that you have for us. We don't want to be settling terras. We don't want to stand in ankle-deep water anymore. We want to dive in head first and go swimming with you and all that you have for us. God, I pray that mediocrity would not be something we would ever be satisfied with. Mediocrity in fulfilling calling. We want it all, Lord. We want it all. We want it all. And God, you see your people, you see this church, and you're getting ready to do something pretty amazing. We see what's going on. We see how the youth group is exploding right now in this church. We see how sisterhood is having incredible effects in the lives of women in our community and surrounding area. We see, God, our children's ministry exploding. We see classes coming forth. We see a renewed passion, God, for the word and for people to be in prayer. God, we see all of this happen. We see churches in our own community here in Indianola coming together and the pastors praying together. We see them even coming together to do ministry together. What an awesome thing. God, we see and we recognize what you are doing. And God, we say, we are, we are, we are here with our hands raised and we are saying yes to it all. We are saying yes to you. We're saying use us like never before. Call us like never before. Let every day be an adventure for us, God, of who we're going to cross paths with, who we can share Christ with, who we can be Jesus to. Open heaven, God. Hear our hearts. Hear our prayers this morning. Open heaven today.
and pour out your glory in this dry and thirsty land. It's like there's a drought and we all know where the watering hole is, but we're not going to tell anybody. And the watering hole never, ever dries up. Give you our hearts today. And we commit to you in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.